to uh, the end. Turn to the end. Revelation 22. Let's look at it together. I'll begin reading in verse 1. Everybody got it? Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And He said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what, what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we have read your word, and Holy Spirit, we pray now that you would take this word and do something with it in our hearts. Father, we pray that... Um, through your word, you'll pull back the veil and let us see your glory this morning in the face of Jesus. Lord, that's a work of your spirit. We cannot do that ourselves. We cannot figure you out. Lord, if it weren't for your grace, if it weren't for the fact, as Jason read earlier, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that through Christ we have seen your glory, and that that's just a foretaste, Lord. We need you to do that work in us today, Father, and I humbly pray that you would. And we ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Some people, um, over the last however many months it's been now, almost two years, I guess have gotten used to not seeing people's faces. And I understand that's been, you know, something that was a necessity uh, in many ways, and some people have, I guess, in some ways gotten used to that. I am not one of them. Uh, I haven't gotten used to that. And the reason that I think we are or should not be comfortable with that, and I'm not, I'm not talking really here about something trying to be you know, difficult. I want to make an illustration here by this point. We were created in the image of God, and we were created to be relational people. And a part of that relational aspect of our lives is in our face. In fact, there is a special portion of our brain dedicated to that. I had not heard of it until I ran across it in some of my study and ran across the FFA. That's not Future Farmers of America. It is that, but that's not what that stands for. It's the fusiform face area. And it's in the temporal lobe of our brain, and it is the part of our brain that's responsible for facilitating facial recognition in us. And from infancy, our whole being is shaped by the way we perceive people's faces. 
Our behavior is shaped by the way we see people's faces. I read a quote this week from, and I'll mispronounce his name, I'll butcher his name, I'm sure, Dr. Sean Kai Chi. He's the senior lecturer of psychology at James Cook University in Singapore. And he's done a study on the social implications of our faces being covered. Now, he is absolutely pro-mask. He says that in his article. He wants us to understand that. But here's what he says. This research was inspired by my own personal struggles in the classroom, especially when we were all required to wear masks for the first time all the time. And it was just difficult, he says, to connect with my students. I couldn't tell if they understood what I said, whether they were confused. I tried to portray a warm approach by smiling, but I'd always wonder if they could tell whether I was smiling. I don't think my experience is unique to myself. I'm sure everyone has their own stories and struggles while being masked up. But we will never talk about this publicly, it seems. In some sense, he says, before COVID-19, we were all like Mona Lisa. We were most charming when we smiled. People trusted us when we smiled. And we could tell how we were feeling if we saw our full faces. But during COVID, we've lost our charming smile. And along with that, it's become more difficult to establish trust and establish emotional connection. These are some of the hidden social costs of wearing face masks. Now, again, my point in this is just simply illustrative to help us see that we were created to be relational, and key to that relationship is our face. And that's true spiritually as well as physically. There are eternal costs to not being able to see God's face. The distinction that we see here at the end of Revelation is between those who see His face and those who do not. And in, some, and in some sense, that's the definition of heaven and hell. Being with, face to face with God and being separated from Him. One day, there'll be blessings beyond anything we can imagine. And even as I read it and preach it and we look at it together, it's still beyond anything we can imagine. That's why it's going to last for eternity to see God's face and take in His glory. It's an unveiling in some ways, which is what the book of Revelation is. And, and as we come to the end, and we're almost home, um, it's been this journey through this unveiling process, all right? John was invited to look into heaven, and there he saw the throne of God, Lord God the Almighty. Sharing that throne was the Lamb standing beside him, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, the Lamb who had been slain. So there they are in all their glory, and no one is worthy to take the scroll except for that Lamb. And he takes that scroll and he begins to unseal it one at a time, and we see those judgments poured out. And there in between that sixth and the seventh seal, in fact, turn back to Revelation chapter 7. It's important that we keep this picture in mind for us. In Revelation chapter 7, Follow along with me. And after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. This is in between the sixth and seventh seal, okay? 
from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That beautiful vision there in Revelation 7 of people from every tribe and tongue and nation is the foundation of the commission that Christ gave us. It's the foundation of the mission that He's called us to. It's what we recognize and, and kind of set apart this month in the life of our church for the Lottie Moon Christmas offering because that's the vision that Jesus has. That's where it will end up and He invites us to be a part of that as we pray and as we give and as we go. That's the vision. That's in between that sixth and seventh seal. The seventh seal brings the seven trumpets. And the seven trumpets are blown and the wrath of God is poured out leading up to the seven bowls. And that seventh bowl is the one where we saw there toward the end that judgment of God being poured out on Babylon the Great, on that prostitute, where we see the the ultimate judgment and destruction of the beast and of the false prophet and of the dragon. We saw that, and there's this contrast there, the contrast that we see even now in today's passage, the contrast between the utter destruction of those who follow the beast and those who are raised up and exalted, reigning with Christ. It says there in Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And then he says what we will see in our passage today. Write these things down, for these words are trustworthy and true. That's that's the picture that we see. So last week, as I read through this passage, we, we, we started working our way through it. So just remember what we did last week, that life in the new and the better Eden, based on what we see here with the river of the water of life, is going to be constant satisfaction and abundance. Constant satisfaction and abundance. Like the old spiritual, shall we gather at the river, right? Well, that's this picture. We will gather at the river. And it's a picture of life flowing from God and the Lamb, flowing from the throne. There'll be no mistake where our life comes from. This picture of abundance and satisfaction. Then there's this picture of consistent provision and healing. On either side of the river, it says, is the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, and the, and the leaves are for the healing of the nations. And we talked about, well, what are we healed from? There's no sickness there. There's no pain. There's no crying. It's a picture of wholeness. It's a picture of flourishing. The tree and the river really are a picture of the same thing, the life that we have in Christ, the life that John talked about in the prologue to his gospel. In him was life, 
and that life was the light of men. That's, that's who Jesus is, and that's the picture that we have here. And it's the promise that he gave early in the book of Revelation. Remember his promise in chapter 2? To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That promise is fulfilled here at the end. And then look at the next verse, verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. Work there will be delightful and meaningful. The curse that we have in Genesis that brought death, yeah, that curse. The curse that brought hardship and pain to childbirth. The curse that brought thorns and thistles and hard work that is not meaningful and not rewarding. That curse is reversed in the new heaven and the new earth. Jesus takes that curse on Him and the blessing of His full obedience, the blessing of Him comes to us. He took His curse, that curse that we deserve, and we get His life. You see, here work is frustrating. It is fruitless sometimes. It, it's just hard. And, it, and it'll crumble with time, we said. In heaven, that work will be full It'll be fruitful. It'll be flourishing. We are created in the image of God, and our God is creative, right? And that creativity will be revealed to His glory by those that He has redeemed. Man, I can't wait. But here's the best part. This is the best part. This is what we were created to want and to know. They will see His face. And his name will be on their foreheads. The whole picture that we have throughout the scriptures of God's presence with his people in the garden, that being broken by sin, and then by his grace, he says, I will meet with you in this place called the tabernacle. And there, there's this holy of holies separated. No one can go in but one, and then only once a year. And then the same is true in the temple that is created. And all the way through, we see that until we get to Jesus. And so the, the whole picture here in heaven is that there's not a temple there, right? Why? Because God is with His people. The whole place, if you will, is a temple. The whole place is a place of worship. The whole place is a holy of holies. And all those who are there are priests. And we have full access. And so this picture is of all this priestly community gathered there in the very presence of God. This is, I believe, the high point of the whole book. I think it may be the high point of all of Scripture because this is where it's headed. This is where it's going. And historically, this verse has been known as the beatific vision. In Latin, it means the sight that makes happy. We were created to be happy, okay? Not the way this world may understand happiness. We were created for happiness. We were created to seek happiness and to know happiness, and that happiness is to be found in that perfect face-to-face -face relationship with God, fellowship with Him. In the end, we will have what was lost in the beginning. And so this beatific vision that these church fathers have called it throughout the ages, this, this, this if you will, this sight that makes happy, it's what I want us to think about it for a few minutes this morning. So God makes us a promise in His Word. Jesus promised us in Matthew 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall what? See God. That's what Jesus promised. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Now, understand something about this. This doesn't mean that when we get there, when heaven and earth come here, when there is this new heaven and this new earth, it does not mean that there will be an as, as Andy Davis has said, an instantaneous downlog and we'll get it all. It won't happen that way. But what will happen is that we will, as Randy Alcorn says in his little book, we'll get it. We'll go, oh, I get it. That, that's what will happen. And he says, don't misunderstand, we're not going to become infinite in the way God is infinite. We're not going to become omniscient in the way He is. We will still be limited. There will still be a finite part of who we are. But we will know accurately. We will know comprehensively. I'll talk about that more in a minute. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. 1 John 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. For, but we know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. So there's the promise. But there's a paradox in all of this. Because John says in 1 John 1.18, as Jason read, and in 1 John 4, no one has ever seen God. Paul says in Colossians 1.15 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He tells Timothy that he is the king of the ages, immortal, invisible. And he also says in 1 Timothy 6 that he dwells in inapproachable light. No one has ever seen or can see him. So Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And then the paradox to that is no one can see God because he's invisible. There's also a prohibition, right? Do you remember? There on the mountain... In the Old Testament book of Exodus, Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I'll make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Yeah, Paul quoted that in Romans 7. And then in verse 20, God said, but you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. It's like the scene out of the movie. You can't handle the truth. We can't handle seeing the radiance of God's face. And God in His grace took Moses and put him in the rock, put him in the cleft of the rock and covered him with His hand and literally He saw God's hind quarter. That's what the word means in the Hebrew. God passed by. And he graciously hid Moses because no one can see God and survive. No one can see him and live. Peter and John and James were on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, right? And the very glory that who Jesus is hidden in his human flesh was revealed to them just for a moment. He was transfigured before them, Matthew tells us. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. What they saw momentarily, God's redeemed will see forever. What Moses could not see, we will see. Do you see that? That's, that's this beautiful picture that here. God hid his Moses, God hid his glory from Moses. Jesus hid his eternal glory inside his human flesh. That's who God is. That's who Jesus is. 
Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So this mystery there of how we see Jesus and see God, that's who he is. Jesus is the glory of God. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, the writer of Hebrews says in, verse, in chapter 1. John, in John 17, as Jesus prayed, he said, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is who Jesus is. And church, this is who we are becoming a little bit at a time, as Jason read from 2 Corinthians. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of God are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So this is who He is, this is who we are becoming, and this is who we will be. Jesus said in Matthew 13, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father, but not yet. We will see His face. And we should hunger for that now. We should long for that now. Dio Moody sensed in his own heart a need for the presence of God much more than he had ever had before. And one of his biographers writes that at one of his tent meetings, there were two women sitting down on the front row, and they were praying for him. Sarah Ann Cook was one of their names, and Miss Hawkehurst was the name of the other. They sat there on the front row of the tent meeting where he was preaching, and they hung around praying after the meeting was over. And when D.L. Moody went to talk to them, they told him they were praying for him to receive the power of the Holy Spirit, and he was somewhat offended by that. Maybe he thought he had it. And Moody said, why don't you pray for the people? And they answered, because you need the power of the Spirit. This had a big effect on D.L. Moody, the author writes, and he began to pray as never before for the moving of the Holy Spirit in his life. And in November of 1871, he was walking down a very busy street in New York City, and he sensed the presence of God starting to flood his mind. So it says he hurried alone to be alone to pray. He went to the home of a friend where he was staying. He brushed aside the invitation to, to a meal, and he went up to his room, and there it says he locked the door and sat on the sofa. The, the room seemed ablaze with God, D.L. Moody said. He dropped to the floor and lay bathing in the divine. He described a power and a presence he had never known before, so much so, Moody says, that he cried aloud, Hold, Lord, it is enough. He couldn't handle any more. We have in our house, as you do in yours, a panel board with circuit breakers in it, right? And those circuit breakers are marked with certain amperage, and those circuit breakers are there to protect you and protect your property should something happen. And those circuit breakers are designed to break the circuit, if you will, to open that circuit so that electricity cannot flow in when it should not. And we have a spiritual circuit breaker in us. Otherwise, we'd be nuked if we ever did see the presence of God. But we will. And we'll be rewired. And we'll get a new circuit board. And those breakers will allow us to see His face. How can this happen? 
What, what has to happen for, for us to be able to see God's face and have His name on us, as we see there in verse 4? What has to happen for that to take place? Back in Revelation chapter 20, we're told it's called the first resurrection. It's called, it says in verse 6, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of our God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. Andy Davis has written a new book on glory. It's really, it's on heaven. And we were at a meeting this week, and he was talking about that. We followed up that in a conversation with him. We were talking about this. And, and let, me, let me ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, just to... Just to Help us understand this rewiring, if you will, how we're going to be able to see God face to face. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This great chapter that Paul writes about the resurrection of Jesus. Over toward the end of the chapter, he gives this illustration that I often use at the graveside when I'm doing a uh, a graveside service or we're doing an interment there, talking about how we in Person County can understand agricultural illustrations, right? The seed you put in the ground is not going to come up the same way that you put it in the ground, all right? You put a corn seed in, it comes back a stalk. I mean, it's just kind of common sense for those of us who understand anything at all about how things are planted and how they grow. In verse 42, Paul says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Look down at verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. So that's the rewiring. That's what will happen so that we can see God's face, see His glory in all its fullness and all its radiance. What is perishable, what will die and decay it will become imperishable. This is the river of life and the tree of life. That's the fruit of it in our lives. It's imperishable. What is sown in dishonor, when you see dishonorable, think about, let me just be frank with you, think about the sights and sounds and smells in a nursing home. And if you haven't been there, you may not understand what I'm talking about. But that's, that's not honorable sometimes, right? But what is dishonorable here and now will be raised in glory, just as Christ was raised in glory. Amen. What is weak now, what gets tired, thirsty, hungry, and sick here will be raised powerful. And I'm not talking crazy power like equal to God, but I'm talking about the strength of God in us eternally. The healing of the nations in that tree will be our strength. And also what is natural will be spiritual. That's the resurrection body of Christ that we see pictured there. So our bodies, our minds, our spiritual capabilities will be rewired, made new. 
And we will have the ability, the capability to see God face to face. And we will be able to handle it. And church, we will want it more than anything else. That's what we will desire. We will delight in it and want more of it. Paul prayed in Ephesians 2, this beautiful prayer where he says, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. That life that we have in Christ, who is the very reflection of the glory of God, that life that we have in Christ, being raised up and seated with him in the heavenly places. It says in verse 7 of Ephesians 2, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us. In Christ Jesus. In the coming ages, there will be an endless lesson in the glory of God. And we will want it. And we'll stay awake through it. I mean, some of us can't handle a 40-minute sermon. We're talking eternity here, people. Eternity. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we'll still be learning. Still be Drinking in and wanting more of what it means to see God's face. Randy Alcorn says, In heaven, barriers between human beings and God will be removed forever. We will look into God's face and see what we've always longed to see. We will see the person who made us for his own good pleasure. Seeing God will be like seeing everything else for the first time. Why? Because not only will we see God, He will be the lens through which we see everything else, other people, ourselves, and even the events of our earthly lives. Jonathan Edwards wrote this, After they had had the pleasure of beholding the face of God millions of years, he's talking about the saints, after we've had the pleasure of beholding the face of God millions of ages, it will not grow a dull story. The relish of this delight will be as exquisite as ever we will see God we will see Jesus and that is the sight that will make us happy that is the only sight that can make us happy now that's it nothing else it says there his name will be on our foreheads remember back earlier in the book of Revelation, all this talk about the mark of the beast. And and my understanding of that is that this mark is simply the characteristic of the beast in those who follow him. Just as the seal on those who belong to Jesus are the very character of Christ in us, being seen through us. He is our Father. We are His children. And we will be with Him, see Him, and reign with Him. That's that's what that is. Verse 5 says, Night will be no more. They need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And this final burst of light just kind of engulfs the whole closing scene in this book. That was, again, what Jesus had said in the very beginning of the book. To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom and priest to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's the picture. That's what John said in 1 John. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we'll be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. So there's this sequence here. Follow along with me. 
It says there in verse 3 that we are His servants and we will serve. And here in verse 5 it says that we will reign. The servants of the beast, those who followed the dragon, lovers of the whore of Babylon, they are ruined, they are crushed, and they are confined into the lake of fire forever. The servants of the king are raised, conformed to the image of their king, and coming along beside him in his eternal work. That's what reigning is. I don't know who we will reign over. I'm not sure what that means, but the King will raise us, we'll be conformed to His glory, and we will reign with Him. David Garland, one of my New Testament professors, in his commentary on Revelation says, Surely it is fitting for such a book of prophecy as Revelation to close around the throne with God's servants worshiping and ruling. Look at verse 6. I want to close here. It says there in that verse, and it's interesting, And I think it's so cool that we read this verse as we do the Advent wreath. He said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets. That's a strange, strange title. The only place you'll find it. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. As John's letter to these early churches was being written, as these people were being oppressed and persecuted, and some of their leaders were dying for the faith, and they were being forced in many ways to to conform to the worship of the government and conform to the idolatry around them, and they were refusing to do so. And all those promises in those letters to those churches, to the ones who conquer, these folks were suffering. And this letter is being read to them. And this letter says, in the end, guys, it's going to work out. It'll be worth it if you persevere. It'll be worth it in your suffering. God will hear the call and the cries of the martyrs. God will make it all right. And as they hear that, this word, I believe, comes to them saying, you can trust this letter from John because the same God who inspires him to write it is the same God who told Isaiah, for unto us a child is born. And unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders. And he'll be called Wonderful God. All these prophets. You can trust them because you can trust the God who inspired them. The same God who inspired Micah to read what, to write what we heard earlier. Oh, you Bethlehem Ephratah who are too little among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is the ruler in Israel. Who is coming, whose coming forth is from the old, from the ancient of days. This same God who inspired Micah is the same one who says here, surely I am coming soon. You can trust it. Why? Because you can trust God. The character of God is seen in the Word of God. And He is trustworthy and true. Amen? And so is His Word. And what hope and what encouragement that must have given this early church. In Romans 15... Paul wrote from Isaiah. Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. And then in verse 13, Paul writes, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. That's the promise that we will see God face to face. That's the hope that God wants us to have. That's what should anchor our souls. 
So what do we do with this? Here's the first thing. Come to Jesus. Because in Him, you see and can have a relationship with the God who created you. If you have never trusted in Christ, turn your eyes to Him as God opens your heart to see Him. Come to Christ. As a church, a second point of application is is look to Him. Okay, Remember, having His name on our forehead means that we are bearing His likeness, the character of His life in us, reflected out of us, the character of our Father in His children. That's what it means to have His name on our foreheads. And, and Jason read this earlier, 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That's a process of transformation that is happening now in baby, baby, baby steps. Right? We will see His face. But that progression, that transformation now... So here's the question that I think about as, I, as I've been just spending time in this. Are, are you and I being transformed by having our eyes fixed on Jesus? Or are we, as Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, being conformed to a world around us because our eyes are on it. Are we hungry to see the face of God? Or are our eyes caught up in the trinkle little glitter of the world around us? This beatific vision, this this vision that makes us happy should be the, the, the compass, the true north of my heart. It should be of all of our hearts. And so... Church, we need to pray for more of this. We, we pray, Lord, let me see you more in the face of Christ. Let me hear you more through time with you and your word. Let me worship you more through my personal prayer time. So come to Jesus if you have not. Look to Him and pray for more of a hunger for His face. And then finally, just share Him. Jason, thank you for reading on through the the latter portion of that passage in 2 Corinthians 4. Listen to it again. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. And in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And Paul says in verse 6, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The interesting thing about this is that when the Apostle Paul is sharing his testimony later on in the book of Acts, those very same words where he says, God is the one who shines light into the darkness and gives our hearts the ability to see the glory of God in the face of Christ, that very same concept is what Paul says God told him to go do. Go and share Christ. And through your sharing, the veil is removed. Through your sharing, Paul, the light that shines into the darkness is brought into the lives of those people. So church, share the good news of Jesus. Pray for the unreached people groups. And go to your neighbor. Let's go to our neighbor. What a great time just to, 
You know, this Sunday, Gerald was, Gerald was talking about heaven. He was talking about seeing God. Can you imagine? And just see where that conversation goes. Be sure you stay with the script. All right? But what a great opportunity. One day we're going to see him. Are you happy, neighbor? Are you happy? Does that question open doors? Yes, it does. <laughs> yes, it does. To lead them to the one who created us to be happy and is the only one who can make us so. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today for this beautiful, hopeful, just extravagant word. Lord, grow in us a longing to see you. And thank you that in Christ we can now, even as in a mirror dimly, and one day that will be fully revealed. Oh, Lord, grow in us a longing for that. Father, I pray for your Holy Spirit to work in all of our hearts as indeed our eyes are so easily turned astray and we get caught up in the glimmer and the trinkling around us. Lord, help us to look to Jesus. Help us to turn our eyes upon Him and look full into His wonderful face. Father, we pray You'll do that. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.